1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And I'm excited to have you all here. As many of you know, who've been listening for a long time, my show has has turned more towards self-improvement, self-actualization, entrepreneurship, health, things of these nature. Today, we're gonna be talking about entrepreneurship, starting businesses, how to thrive in a recession. I have an expert in the field who probably, most of you know who he is, have him coming on the show. Awesome interview. And uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. I'll, I'll introduce him in a minute. Before I do that, I just want to remind you that you could have heard this interview earlier this week, actually on Tuesday when I did the interview, if you were in the Lions of Liberty Pride most of my interviews are streamed to Facebook or to an unlisted YouTube link for our pride members to watch and comment along. You can do that too for as little as five dollars a month. Just go to patreon.com slash lions of liberty or to lions or sorry or to lionsofliberty.locals.com. That locals link always screws me up. But Consider doing that, you get a bunch of other perks, you get to influence the show, Um, of course you get to join our Lions of Liberty community, and we have some exciting and maybe surprising announcements um, coming up in the next few weeks. So jump on board now, join us, and it's going to be a wild ride. So hold on to your hat and let's get started with this interview. All right. We are live here in the Alliance of Liberty Pride, joined by Jason Stapleton. Probably most of you know who Jason is and uh, have listened to his show. For those who haven't, he is the host of the Jason Stapleton program. He's an entrepreneur. He's the founder of the Nomad Network. He's been on Mark's show a few times. He's been on Brian's show a few times. I think the first time on Finding Freedom. Jason, welcome to Finding Freedom, man.
0: Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure.
1: I'm glad you... I'm glad you... Decide to come on Finding Freedom because my show is a little bit different and I think aligns really well the, the direction that I'm taking this show with your message and what you're doing with regards to the Nomad Network and entrepreneurship and really your outlook on how the economy is going to evolve or how you see it evolving, I think, in the next uh, you know 10 years or so. And I want to talk about all that stuff, but for, for those of my listeners who maybe haven't heard of you... Um, when you meet someone new, how do you describe what you do?
0: Uh well, so what I do now, what I tell people now is that I work with early stage entrepreneurs who want to start and grow a business, but don't want to borrow money or sell equity. And so I work with bootstrapped companies. Uh, and more, more importantly, individuals, because you talk about companies, there's a person behind that. And it's typically somebody, a solopreneur or somebody who's trying to get an idea or a concept off the ground. And I just I help them build it. And so we've created communities, we've created uh, training programs and, and all kinds of other stuff to kind of help facilitate people creating more freedom and, and more autonomy for themselves through entrepreneurship.
1: So I know you've told your your story before on Mark's show, and you've told it on on your show. I'm not asking you to go into like all the details on how you became an entrepreneur, but I'm kind of curious if there is a specific point in time when you realized I don't want to work for someone else. I have to, you know, I have to work for myself. I, I need to be an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it worked that way for me. I I was. Uh I got out of the military and I ended up going back in and doing some private military consulting work overseas in like Iraq and Afghanistan. And while I was there, I I realized that I was kind of a I was kind of an entrepreneur then. I was a private contractor. So I didn't, I worked for different companies at different times. But for me, it was more about how do I get into a, a different line of work that I'm not getting shot at every day? And uh, I originally really wanted to get into the financial services space. And so um, I had I'd become a pretty Pretty decent trader, uh, a currency trader, and was trying my hand at that. And I was trying to raise money to start a fund. And for a lot of different reasons, I ended up not doing that. But I started an education company instead. And it was really out of a, a necessity, desire, necessity to just not be doing the job that I was doing. I was, I, I, you know, Mark talks about the pretty good job trap, which I think is a, a really good description of where I was at the time. This mm-hmm. would have been two thousand eight, two thousand nine, which was just like dude, this job's cool. Like it takes me all over the world and I get it, but I'm away from my kids seven months out of the year, eight months out of the year. That was very difficult for me. And although the pay was good, it wasn't certainly good enough to get killed for. And, and so I was stuck in this pretty good job trap where it was like, okay, where am I going to make the kind of money that I'm making here? I have no college degree. I have no education beyond the military. And, and for me, entrepreneurship was the only thing that was open to me. So then it was just a matter of like, what do you want to do? Assuming that you could do anything and work in any industry, which one would it be? That's, that's kind of how mm-hmm. I got into it. And I started a podcast later, which most of your listeners probably know about. I, I built a pretty successful libertarian podcast uh, and then pivoted that to really talking more about entrepreneurship in the last three or four years in the hopes of kind of, kind of facilitating a lot of the stuff that I talked about on my show as it relates to to politics and freedom, but actually trying to help people get results and actually create mm-hmm. that for themselves. And so I don't know if that kind of answers your question or that's where you wanted me to go, but that's it.
1: No, no, that, that, that definitely helpful. And I'm kind of curious, you know, I've heard Gary V kind of talk about that, you know, entrepreneurs, It's it's kind of like almost ingrained in you to become an entrepreneur or to be someone who's willing to, to take on that risk. Do you believe you know, that to a, to a degree or do you think that really entrepreneurship can be, can be taught or can be learned over time?
0: Well, I, I see. I that's a good question. So I, I actually believe that everybody's an entrepreneur. It's just a matter of of how many how many customers you have. You know, for most people who work a, a day job, a nine to five, they have one customer, one person who vies for their skill, their talent, their ability, uh, and that one customer is the boss who employs them. And we come from a society. It wasn't until really the industrial revolution that happened in America that you saw people going in and this idea of a company that's got hundreds or thousands of people who work for it and, and you work in a specific division. I mean, prior to that time, really everybody was an entrepreneur you either were a farmer in the agrarian society which we were very much like 80% of people worked on farms if you worked in the city you typically owned a business a haberdashery or or a, you were a, um you were a butcher or you were a, a, a seamstress or a tailor what, what was that word you, you know,
1: just said uh, a ha- haberdashery hab- haberdashery <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a
0: Somebody who owned a men's clothing store from the, okay. from the nights, from the 18, 1800s, 1900s, it's called a haberdashery.
1: It's a new word. Right. Don't ask me how I know that.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So you did one of those things. It wasn't until, you know, the 1920s that you really started seeing people become employees of big companies. If you were an employee of a, of a butcher in 19, then 1900 or 1850, Basically, you were learning to be a butcher. You were an apprentice, and you were probably sleeping in the back room or were mm-hmm. renting space somewhere at a meager, meager fee so that you could learn how to do it. Uh, and so when I look at it, people say, well, not everybody could be an entrepreneur. And I say, no, that's just not true because you know your ancestors weren't starving. They figured it out. And certainly, I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But where the economy is going right now, we're we're moving away from that sort of big structure of everybody's got an employee, uh, an employee, and and everybody's an employee, and everybody works for a big company and gets benefits and 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 a you know and a 401k, and we're moving back to a really a more of an entrepreneurial society where uh, the 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 types of jobs that are available now, the amount of money that can be made working for yourself uh is is so good that i think people do themselves a disservice not just on the financial side but also on the i think on the on the on the freedom side by not pursuing some kind of entrepreneurship even if it's just a part-time business uh, cuz i get that a lot too like people people say i and i really like my day job like i enjoy the work that i do great man keep doing that but maybe do something else on the side just in case something happens to you that you're not put in a position where now the only the only employer that you've got, the only means of providing for yourself, mm-hmm. is gone.
1: Yeah, it's it's simple risk mitigation. I mean, it's it's extremely risky to put all your eggs in one basket and all of your all of your time when you're exchanging your time for dollars in, into a into a job. I mean, so it's it's great when people like their job. I mean, that's that's awesome. But to have, especially a single income household, to not have something else uh, to kind of give you a buffer there. I think it's just a little bit irresponsible, honestly.
0: No, no. I think it's extremely risky. And a lot of people look at entrepreneurship as risky. Um, I've always found the opposite to be true. I always said, you know, if I, I I, I explain to people like this, say, let's assume that you own a company and you make a good living. Let's say you make $200,000 or $300,000 a year owning this company but you only have you only have one buyer you have one guy who buys from you or one company that buys from you every single month like how would you feel going to sleep at night would you just put your head down to rest just like you know confident that everything's going to go great and very happy with your life and how things have worked out and how the business is progressing or would you be like waking up in a cold sweat every single night hoping and praying that that one that one person who does business with you continues to do business because if they go away you're flat broke with no opportunity um unfortunately that's the way most people live in their nine to five and and again i don't want to this is another thing i i think people feel like when i talk about this stuff that they're i'm beating up on people who have nine to five jobs and that's not it at all um i'm just trying to explain and 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 use an example that showcases man you're really not as safe as you probably think you are working this the, with all you have is just this steady job. Mm-hmm. And you'd be far better off if you could just create, even if it's a vein of income that's generated from the outside, something that you control and that you can build up your, yourself that isn't reliant on a third party to sort of make it work.
1: Right. So, so let's talk a little bit about the Nomad Network. It's been, has it been more than a year since you started it? A little over a year now, yeah, yeah, so yeah, talk about the growth that you've seen, and uh you know I, I know that you've been doing on your podcast some uh highlight episodes, you know talking about people who've you know built some businesses in that time over the past year and and using the resources within the Nomad network, so tell us about you know some of the success that you've seen as well.
0: Yeah, well, about a year about a year ago, about the time that we started the Nomad Network, I um I was frustrated with my business because I I don't measure success based off of income or or those types of benchmarks. I did for a long time, but I, I found that to be a kind of a distraction to what the real goal should be, which is how do we if the if I I run an information business. So I I coach, I consult for people the real measuring stick should be how many people are seeing results, how many people are getting desired result out of what we produce. Mm -hmm. And I was unhappy with the amount of reach that we had. And I determined, I decided that the reason we didn't have the kind of reach that I wanted to have was because um, I looked and sounded like everybody else, which was basically like, Hey, you need to make a change. I can help you buy my stuff. And you know, that worked well. I, I, I was paid very well for that. And, uh, and we saw a lot of results, but I wanted to have a, a lot deeper impact. And so I started just coming up and with a list of questions like, what do we need to do to, and what is the standard? What should it be? And I decided that I really wanted to focus on the people that I could help create the biggest amount of change for. Uh, and, and that was the people who wanted to transition, who wanted to start a business part-time or full-time and didn't know what to do. And how quickly can we get those people from $0 to an extra $1,000 a month in extra income? Uh, $1,000 a month is $12,000 a year. That's like life-changing money. And so I set this goal of helping 1,000 people make an extra $1,000 a month in income. And the question is, what what needs to be constructed in the business? Let
1: let me me just pause on that for a minute because people might kind of gloss over an extra $1,000 a month and think like that doesn't sound like a lot. Just just people, you know, listening at home, listening in the car, just think about if you had that extra $1,000 buffer, if you weren't up against that wall with the bills and your mortgage and what you could do with that. I mean, it's, I think people hear those numbers and they they just don't think really how much of an impact it could have in their life.
0: Yeah. And you make a great point on that. And that was one of, when we were deciding on the numbers, everybody out there, anybody who's trying to, it's claiming they can teach you how to start a business or how to run a business is all like, let me show you how I went from zero to making my first million dollars in four months and some like unreal, like unreasonable sort of like thing. And I didn't want to be that guy. Like, I don't, there's plenty of those people out there, but there are a lot of people who are just like, man, dude, I, I can't see that vision. Like the idea of making a hundred thousand dollars a year or a quarter of a million dollars a year is beyond my even comprehension. But when we Mm -hmm. talk about a thousand dollars a month, that's a realistic goal for most people. And for most Americans, that's life-changing money. That means no more overtime. It means I can be home at six o'clock to see my kids every single day after work. It means maybe my wife can quit her job and she can be there when the kids have come home from school so that she doesn't have to, that they're not latchkey kids. It could be, Hey, I can now take a vacation or I can actually mm-hmm. put some money away for retirement now because I have this extra money coming in. And we, we overlook that and nobody talks about that piece of it. And so I said, how do we, what needs to be built so that we can help facilitate this? And I knew as part of this kind of transition that we had in the business that I didn't want to charge money for any of it, that I wanted, I, I didn't feel like it was right to ask people to invest in you until you've been able to deliver some result for them. And so the Nomad Network is an idea of a community I had, which is how do we take a bunch of people who are all on the same path, who are at various levels? Because inside there, we have people who are brand new and have no business at all. And we have people who run multi-million dollar businesses who are regular active members of our network with the idea that the sole purpose of the network is to support people as they're trying to build a business and get to that, you know, that initial dollar, that initial thousand dollars a month and then beyond. And so that's what we created and a, a, along with that comes a, a coaching program that again is free that's designed to get people to that $1000 a month and I just I've been pouring all of my effort and energy just in trying to help people create that a level of freedom and autonomy that we all dream about I don't think there's anybody who doesn't want more f- control over their time and wants to spend their days doing what they love it's just most people don't ever have that opportunity because there's nobody standing there saying, dude, I'll help you. And I I don't, I don't need anything for the help.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a very, it's very unique in the way you've structured it in that, like you said, you have viewpoints from every different, every different level. It's not, you know, the, the input, the, the material that's there, the people asking questions are from all different walks of life, from all different experience levels. So you get a very, very wide spectrum of input, which really I, I haven't seen that anywhere else. So, so I think it's a very unique tool.
0: Yeah. It's, it's tough to find on the network, somebody who isn't already doing what you're doing or working in that kind of area. And we try and set up groups for people who are like, we have homesteading groups. We have a design and manufacturing group. We have a lot of these different groups where people are in unique industries And, and we have both brand new people in there and also folks who are, uh, who are very successful at it. I mean, you know, one of the members of one of the groups has got a, you know, got a 10 figure business. It's a, it's massive. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so again, but the goal is that the community is front and center, that it's not me that I'm, I'm the facilitator. I I put the clock together and I want, what I want is for the, the community itself to serve itself. And for it to be self-supporting. And I do a lot of stuff. I do podcasts. I do uh, video training. I put out courses and stuff that are all part of the community uh, that people have access to. But really, the real value of the community is, is the community itself.
1: So let's take a little pivot, not really a pivot, but just talking about the reality of where we are right now. In a recession, likely. I mean, if you if you hear from the talking heads on TV, they might say we're not in a recession, um, but you know we're we're definitely in some uncertain economic times. We have inflation that is the highest probably that we've seen in our lifetime. Um, at this point in time, why or explain why do you think businesses? Why do you think entrepreneurs are made in times of recession? Because, I mean, you'll hear it said from people over and over again. In fact, I've heard you say it on a, a recent episode that you started your first business in the recession that was 2008, 2009. So why is it that people are able to find success and find that niche in, succession, in recessions?
0: That's a good question. I don't, I don't actually know if that's true or not. So I, I do know that lots of money is made during recessions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if more fortunes are made during recessions than in, in good times. I don't know that. I just know that there is no, there's no real correlation between where the economy is and how successful your business is going to be. Your success, your business success really has more to do with doing the right things at the right time so that your business can grow and foster, um, and, and can serve. But, um, I do, think that, I do think that there is one of the benefits of, of starting a business during a recession is that during times of abundance, there's a lot of bloat in any industry. And so there are a lot of people and businesses that operate just simply because there's an abundance of people who need product or service. And they're actually not running a very good business. It's not an efficient business. They don't treat their customers well. But just out of pure dumb luck because of volume, they're able to keep the business afloat. As you move into a recession, what happens is most of those businesses die out. You can take a look at two thousand and eight, two thousand nine. If you got, if if your listeners were around and, and old enough to remember, uh, everybody and their cousin was a real estate agent. Everybody, every single person, it's like right go- now too. <laughs> well, yeah, even now, you know, it's, it's kind of the same yeah. way today. But I remember, dude, two thousand and eight. Everybody had a real estate license. Mm-hmm. There weren't enough seats in the bullpen at the at the real estate company that I worked for. Uh, to even to house all of these people, part-timers, full-timers. And then 2008 happened and like 60% of them all quit. And what does that do? Well, for the people who are doing it and treating it like a business and who are running an efficient business and are doing a good job of nurturing leads and building rapport and value and, and really uh, giving people a reason to come and do business with them, they sucked up any excess inventory that was gone, for, that was left behind when these other people quit. Same thing's true in almost any industry. Industries have cycles as well as economies. And so whatever industry you're in, man, when times get tough, good businesses survive and bad businesses implode. And one of the advantages that your listeners have that anybody has in starting a business during a recession is that you're already lean. You're already learning how to work on a minimal budget with with uh, without that bloat. You haven't hired three or four employees that you don't need. You don't have a $10,000 marketing budget or a $100,000 marketing budget that's just eating away at your capital every single month. Mm. Right? These these problems don't exist for you. So you have a natural competitive advantage over other people.
1: That's that's a really good point. And it's it probably another factor in it is you have a little bit of desperation added in. And, and those that kind of thrive in those situations, be it in an employee atmosphere, you know, someone who is putting in extra hours, you know, they can replace maybe three employees who get laid off and they take on more work. Um, same same thing in, uh, you know, with, with businesses. So it's probably a, li- a little bit of all of that. And I think that's a really good point. It's not necessarily that people, you know, are more successful during recessions. It's that there's less, maybe there's less people being successful and, and they're more highlighted. They're more visible maybe. Well, you got less competition for sure. And
0: especially if you're starting a business part-time, which is how I suggest everybody do it, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur, don't, don't quit your job and go out and, and borrow money and try and get this thing to go. You keep that job, keep working that thing. And come home, spend a few hours uh, a day, a few hours a week, whatever you can devote to the business to working that business and getting it started and and using whatever uh, capital you have to, to, to prove and validate that you have a viable business. And then slowly, if you want to move that business full time, you can start devoting more and more time and attention to it until eventually you hit kind of a tipping point where it's like, hey, I, I have to quit my job because I'm Turning down business that could be feeding me, and mm-hmm. what what I found is that with a lot of people, it doesn't take much. And I should probably caveat this because I'm not suggesting that it's easy, but it doesn't take much to replace a sixty or seventy thousand dollar a year income. It just it it doesn't take a lot, and people learn pretty quick. Hey, I can I can I can create a lot of extra income for a little bit of extra time and work, and then it's just a matter of. Hey, how bad do I want to work a full time business?
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. So let's kind of take this to, to the next step. So talking about being in the recession we're in right now, um, obviously dealing with this inflation. So we have a we have a, a dollar issue, um, cryptocurrency up and down. You know, uncertainty in in the crypto markets with Bitcoin. I think a lot of people thought that there would be a shift to Bitcoin. With uh, the inflation that's happened, we haven't really seen that yet. Um, sort sort of mixing mixing all of that stuff together, and I mean, we can get into this too later or now if if it factors into your response. But eventually, probably we'll have a, a central bank digital currency, a, a CBDC. Yeah. Um, fa- factoring in all of this stuff, what do you see? this is probably a very loaded question. So feel free to take it any direction you want and I can follow up. But okay. where, where, where do you see things going in in the near term, you know, the next two, three, two, three years? Do you see a lot of changes ha- happening quickly?
0: It's so hard. This, this is probably one of the only places I could have this discussion is with an audience like yours because your audience understands this stuff better than most people do. Here's what I think is going to happen um, on a, on a kind of a big... Uh, first of all, it's very difficult. Economics is a really poor, uh, it's a really poor measuring stick when trying to pick timing, right? We can look at the broader economy and say, yeah, this is eventually going to have some very catastrophic problems to it. But whether that happens in a week or a month or a year or five years, you don't know. What I try and tell people is, look, you know, it's going to get bad. You know, that we continue to make the problem worse and kind of kick the can down the road. Um, I don't care whether you got a week or a year or 10 years, you should start working on it right now. And when I was talking about this in 2018, it was one of the things I kept saying was like, listen, we're going to, something's going to happen. I don't know what the catalyst is going to be, but there's going to be something and we're going to have a terrible downturn in the economy. And then COVID hits and the whole thing kind of like the whole world shuts down. And I, I had one of my best years in 2020 because all of a sudden now people are frantic. They're like, what do I do? Well, now I need to make some money. So now, okay, Jason, show me what I need to do. Well, that's the wrong headspace. That's the wrong place to be in. Mm-hmm. You don't want your back against the wall like that. What I think is going to happen is uh, cryptocurrency is an interesting one. I think ultimately you're going to have a variety of of cryptocurrencies that get used and the government is going to end up uh, having its own fiat currency, that it, it uh, digital currency it has. Um, but the bigger question is, what's going to happen to inflation and interest rates? The Fed seems to be it seems to be confident in its decision to continue to raise rates. What concerns me is that. The the U.S. government is not going to be able to continue to borrow money at high interest rates. They're they're bar- borrowing money at almost zero, and eventually going to they're going to be borrowing money at six percent. And you want to talk about now? Now we can't even service the the interest on the debt. So I think what's going to happen is the government is going to issue special treasuries on uh, a low low interest rate. And they will only sell those treasuries. They'll only be, you can only buy them if you are our own Federal Reserve. So it's a special treasury that only the Fed purchases at a near zero or very low interest rate so that the government could continue to borrow money cheaply uh, without risking insolvency. That is another way for them to kind of kick that can down the road, maybe a few more years, maybe more than that. Uh, Before before we see some really catastrophic consequences. And I think ultimately the way it ends is in a form of hyperinflation. I think you're going to see most of most of your wealth and most of the wealth of the nation evaporate in some sort of hyperinflation. And we get into more of that if you want to on why I think that's the case. But that's that's
1: so my the question is, how do I prepare for that? Yeah, that was going to be my follow up. So, so what what should people? Some of the 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 big levers that people should be should be looking to pull to prepare for that.
0: Yeah, Um, my goal has always been to have as much control over my life and time as possible. Uh, I think that creates the greatest amount of security. So, if I own a business. And prices go up, I can adjust my prices. I can always go out and work to earn more money and to increase my income. If inflation starts to hit and I work for somebody else, it's very difficult for me to do that. I I, have, I don't have control over what I'm paid. I don't have control over how many hours I can work in many cases. Uh, that's not the truth. That's not the case if you're an entrepreneur. The second thing I would do is I would invest in things that you understand, preferably those things that do well in a high inflationary environment. So if you have surplus income, uh, and and you need some place to put it, real estate is going to be a good one. Um, some beans, bullets, and band-aids. You know these are the types of things that think of like what what is a hedge against inflation. Alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, you buy cases of alcohol as alcohol goes up in value. So Milton Friedman's very fond of saying that the only remedy to high inflation is high living, basically meaning spend your money as fast as you can. But in a hyperinflation or, or high inflation, maybe not hyperinflation, but a high inflation environment, one of the things you can do is, is buy things that tend to increase in value as inflation rises. So some of those consumables, real estate, stuff like that. Right. But there's not a lot you can do. It's, it will, the, the stock market will keep up for a while, but we have bubbles in the stock market, too. Those are going to be very poor performers, I think, over the next decade. I could be wrong. I could have this completely wrong, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. That's my big thing.
1: What, what about gold and silver? Where, where do you fall on that? I'm a, I'm a fan of
0: gold as a, as a wealth protector. Uh, I think that you can, I think if you're going to invest in any kind of stock or commodity, you need to really be an expert at that. It's it's something that I'm, I think that you should only invest in things that you really know and understand that you like and understand. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to invest in gold, you need to understand how to read a gold chart, understand why gold moves and what the real value is. Gold is a really good wealth protector. It's not a very good wealth creator.
1: Yeah, and it's arguably not very good at you know, transacting wealth. I mean, you have a, a one ounce gold coin, wh- what are you going to do? You're kind of limited on what you can trade value to value with.
0: No, um, you're right. And I used to talk about that too, because people would buy all this gold, they buy these gold coins, and they're like waiting for the apocalypse to happen. And I'm like, what are you going to do with a $10,000 gold coin when the apocalypse happens? Like, how are you going to, you going to cut it in half and into pieces? I mean, you ought to be buying junk silver if you really think the whole world's going to implode and we're going to go back to trading coins.
1: Uh but yeah, certainly you're going to walk up, walk up to someone's house. They're heavily armed. Excuse me, could I trade this gold coin for some food? They'll just kill <laughs> exactly. you. <laughs> exactly.
0: No, I don't. I don't think people have thought that through very much. Everybody thinks they're. Been my experience. Everybody thinks they're a little bit tougher than they are, and everybody thinks they're a little bit smarter than they are. So I, uh, but I, I am a I am a fan of of those types of currencies. I'm actually a fan of cryptocurrencies at the right time. I was a huge fan of crypto going into 2020. And it wasn't until early 2022 that I was talking with most of the uh, my investors because we have an investor group on the uh, on the network as well. That I started saying, "Hey, these charts don't look good. We got sell signals on here. You should probably I, I'm I'm clearing out my my crypto holdings." And of course, now we've seen a pretty big decline, and I think we go another leg down before we start seeing any support. So, uh, I, I'm a fan of these things when it makes sense, but again. It's something that I know intimately because I spent so many years as a currency trader.
1: Yeah, I I think Bitcoin's a a problem or crypto as a whole is a problem until it is really adapted into the mainstream. I mean, what's, what's the intent of Bitcoin? It's electronic cash. Well, do you cash. think
0: that it'll ever be? You know I mean? Do you think it'll ever be adapted? What do you mean by adapted for mainstream?
1: Well, it, it has. It, I mean, the purpose of it for people to be able to, to make a to make a peer to peer transaction without a, you know a third party, without a bank getting involved, right? So mm-hmm. I, I could see it be. I don't know if it'll ever be mainstream, but I could see it being you know used in in a parallel economy type situation. I've had a guy on my show. Um, he goes by um, Texas Slim. And he's creating this network of, of ranchers who uh, are selling beef or eggs or whatever else directly to consumers. And they'll accept cash, but he's working on them also to accept Bitcoin. So, you know, if things do devolve, you're able to have this parallel, um, you know, food supply chain where where you can still eat and still get access to, you know, nutritious food, um, even if they're, you know, the, the, uh, financial, you know, the federal reserve does go to like a CBDC or something. You can move into Bitcoin and still, still feed your family.
0: Yeah. I, so here, let's talk about Bitcoin and then let's talk about the the future of kind of finance in general. I, I think they're kind of two separate issues. So I don't think Bitcoin will ever be a currency that you transact with. I think it will, if it's, if we can keep, the speculation down, or we can, you know, we can get enough coins in service that we actually. It may take more speculation to make it work right. But basically, what you need for a stable currency is you need it to be a store of value, and you need it to be transactable and, and divisible, so you can transact in small, well, and large. That amounts. kind of raises
1: the question: Is, is Bitcoin even a, even a currency? Well, if you're talking about the,
0: co- the, the digital coin that they, that they create, or are you talking about the underlying blockchain technology? Those are two different things. I'm talking um, about
1: the – well, that's, that's a good question. I guess I haven't thought about that. I guess I'm talking about the, the, the digital coin itself. Well, th- this, is why,
0: this is the way I see it. In order for, in order for a currency to really be good – and this may turn off some of your listeners, but just bear with me on this – there needs to be a slight inflationary hedge in the currency. There needs to be an incentive to spend it over storing it. Right now with Bitcoin, everyone is gobbling up as much as they can and holding it because they believe that it's going to appreciate in value. And they haven't had a lot. They had a lot of luck with it for a little while. Now there's been a collapse. But I think over time, what you're going to see is most people hold on to uh, Bitcoin the way they do gold. It's, it'll be a store of value with a slight, a slight uh, deflationary hedge, so you'll see appreciation in the currency. But without an incentive to spend it, I think you'll see somebody move to another currency, another digital currency, be it a, a, you know, the one created by the Fed or Ethereum coin or one of the other like stable coins or something that's out there for transacting. Hmm. There are all kinds of problems right now with the blockchain on being able, th- being able to transact enough and fast enough. And yes, there are things like the Lightning Network now, if those of you uh, listeners who are familiar with that, but that even that has all kinds of problems with it. How big should the blocks be? Can we make them even bigger? Can we, do we make them smaller? Like there's, there's, there's kind of a deviation in the way people think this ought to be done. It's very new, very experimental. It's still in its infancy. So long term, I do think that digital currency is, is going to be the way everybody goes, primarily because it'll be almost impossible to hide transactions, which is one of the things governments really want. Um, But are we going to need banks with decentralized finance and smart contracts? And I mean, again, I don't know how much you guys talk about this, but it it occupies a lot of my my reading and thinking time. Those types of things are going to radically change the way we get investments, micro investing, and lending. Uh, the, the the need for banks in a traditional sense, uh, but I I would caution your audience because we've seen several of these like Bitcoin banks that have collapsed recently. And the the truth is they weren't operating as a true defi uh, uh, a true DeFi lending institution. What they were operating as was just a traditional bank that dealt in cryptocurrencies. They were overly leveraged. And they couldn't support they couldn't support themselves once the price of the currency dropped through the floor.
1: So, so they were doing fractional reserve banking through yeah. with Bitcoin.
0: That's exactly what they were doing. It was mm-hmm. fractional reserve banking just using Bitcoin. Wow. They for every coin they brought in, they were lending out ten or whatever. It was just it was it was a nightmare. Um, and yeah, as soon as they, uh, they were they were loaning out they were loaning out. Can't remember if they you know, so they were bringing dollars and loaning out in Bitcoin or some 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 nonsense or vice versa, but they basically had a fractional reserve system that they had that they had anchored in Bitcoin and had sold that way. And yeah, the second the price changed, they were upside down, and you know they couldn't pay out their investors
1: anymore. So, future of finance, future of the world that we live in. Um, you know, we're talking about. And I, I agree with you. Um, I think in the future, banking-wise, it, it'll look very different. And we'll, I mean, one one interesting thing to think about: think about how how many people are employed by banks right now, and imagine all of that just being just being wiped away. All those people not having you know any jobs. I mean, you see any city you go to, you see five six huge skyscrapers filled with people working for banks. Do think um, about
0: think about accountants. This is where my yeah. mind goes. Think about accounting with With the continued advancement of artificial intelligence and automation, like artificial, we're really a long way away if you talk to any any of the real experts on a, a general artificial intelligence, where they can think and act and, and repeat mm-hmm. a lot of a, a lot of human traits. But we're very close to a level of artificial intelligence that can do two-ledger bookkeeping. And imagine the day when there is a robot who has every single tax law on the books at its disposal in in milliseconds and you just give them all your stuff and they go, there's your taxes. There's just, there won't be a need even for very complex sort of tax rules, unless it's creative accounting, which is what like Amazon would use to avoid paying corporate taxes. Unless it's something like that, you're going to, you're not going to need general accountants anymore. It's going to have, and there are, there are a thousand little niches like that, that over the next 20 years are going to see dramatic reductions in the, in the number of people we need to do that type of work. And that's deeply concerning to me as part of this great transition that we're in right now is how many people are going to be left without the skills, without the knowledge to be able to compete in the economy of tomorrow, because, dude, I, I'm I'm 43 years old. I will still be working in 20 years, without a doubt. Probably in 30. And I think a lot of the jobs that we think are are safe today um, are going to be gone in 20 years.
1: So with well, yeah, with jobs going away, with people needing to work to feed their family, what what fills that gap? I mean, obviously, the government. People like Andrew Yang would have their UBI, their universal basic income to fill that gap. But in a, uh, you know, in a Jason Stapleton world, what would be your, your vision, your scenario for how people would make money in a world where we don't and have you, banks, or we don't have accountants?
0: Yeah, as a curiosity, are you a fan of the UBI? I'm, I'm guessing you're not.
1: No, I mean, no, I've, I've, I've never heard it presented in a way, and I can't imagine hearing it presented in a way where I would be a, be a fan of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, assuming, assume we were talking about a UBI that is funded by coercive taxation.
0: Sure. Yeah, that makes, yeah. So, so the question to your question, I was just out of curiosity, I was just wondering kind of where, where you were at on that, because I don't, I don't know, they're going to try and claim that there, I think that there's a problem that doesn't really exist, which is there are jobs are going away and these people can't find new jobs. You know, we're, that that's not a problem today. And I think what you're going to see happen over time is that people are going to have to acquire some new skills. And what may be needed is some sort of retraining program or some option opportunity that if you're, if you're going to have a social welfare system, which we've decided in America that we are, and I'm all for it. If you want to get rid of that whole social safety net system, you know, come talk to me when it's actually done mm-hmm. until then. The question is th- this is something that we we have what's the best way to, what's the best way to implement it? And I don't know, universal basic income seems better than having a hodgepodge of services that somebody has to qualify for. I'd rather just be like, dude, here's your 10 grand every year. If you want to go buy Skittles and licorice whips and yoo with it, then that's fine. You go do that. But
1: that's all you get. If, uh, if, I if, also, if that's, so if you're saying like either or, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. So yeah, if, if you're saying take away all the other welfare programs and replace it with UBI, I would say, yes, I'm in favor of that exchange. But that, in my opinion, I don't think that would ever be what would happen. You would have the UBI on top of sure. the other programs. More than likely. Yeah. So I,
0: don't, I think the last thing that any, uh, any of us should be doing is looking to, is looking externally to solve the problem. Well, we got to get this person elected or we got to pass this law or we got to remove this regulation. And until we do that, uh, there's nothing you can do because that's, that's what I hear a lot of. Well, we can't do anything right now. Can't, I can't get ahead. Nobody can. That's just not true. None of those things are true. Those are things mm-hmm. that you tell yourself so you feel better about the situation that you're in, so that you feel better about not taking any action uh, You know, to make the most out of your own life. And so what I believe is that the best thing you can do is invest in yourself. Increase your human capital, your rare and specialized skills that give you value in an economy. If your skills are out of date, Skillshare, they'll give you three free months at Skillshare. You can go learn anything you want to. Focus on creative work because that's the work that's going to be the most valuable. My wife, my wife is works, um, she works, she recruits in Hollywood for, uh, for companies that do graphic design and a lot of the promotions for billboards and things like that. Mm If you're a, if you're a good graphic designer, if you're a good, I can't compositor is what they call it for, you know, the posters and everything where you've got explosions in the background and people in the foreground and it all kind of looks right. That's a compositor. Compositor can make $150 an hour. Just sitting around, you know how much it costs to learn how to be a compositor. Zero effing dollars. Zero. You go on the school of YouTube, you spend your evenings working on it and perfecting it. If it's something you really enjoy doing, it's $150 an hour. Um, and you'll be booked for months, like 12 months out of the year if you want it.
1: And they don't look for they don't look little, for a college degree for that. Uh you know, for that yeah, job.
0: you don't have to get a college degree, none of that. No, here's the thing: yeah. nobody's even gonna ask you for a resume other than just, hey, here's where I've worked in the past and here's my book, which is what everybody wants to see. If you want to do, you know, video editing and you came to me and you're like, hey, Jay, I want to do some video editing for you. I know that's something you need help with. First thing I'd tell you is send me four or five edits that you've done from other people or that you've just done of your own stuff and let me see your editing skills. And I'll know instantly whether I'm going to pay you or not. That's the kind of world that we're moving into. We're not, it's, it's not a meritocracy. It's a skillsocracy. And I can't remember mm-hmm. who said that. I wish I could give him credit. It's not mine, but we're in a skillsocracy now where oh, skills okay. are far more important than education, far more important than anything else. So you have to be constantly acquiring new skills. If you're not, don't be surprised if you get left behind.
1: I know that we, we talked about talking about the Trump rate, and I do want to get your opinion on it right before yep. we end here, but I, I want to talk about the skillsocracy for a minute here and about higher education and just get, you, get your opinion on where, where you think things will go. We have this huge higher education bubble. I agree with you. We do have a, a skills economy coming into place. It's a collision course. Does, does higher education survive, in your opinion, in some, some form or fashion?
0: Maybe in some form or fashion, but not as it is today. Right now, the the economy and technology moves too quickly to support a higher education system like we have today. If you if you are still planning on going to college or you are advocating that your children go to college and you are not asking some very serious questions like, Am I do I need a degree to operate? So if you want to be a lawyer or a, a a doctor, you gotta go to medical school. There's no way around that, right? But what else could you be doing? to learn a skill or to get into an industry because we're already seeing a lot of large companies no longer requiring a college degree. And I'll give you an example and this is not a pitch because you can't buy this from me right now or anything, but I do private consulting, one-on-one consulting with business owners who are trying to scale their businesses. And it costs between $3 and $6,000 a year for you to get that for you to do the consulting with me. Um, if you want a day of consulting, I, I can fly out. We spend the day together. It's I it's like $12,000, $12,500 is what I bill for that, right? And people look at that and they're like, that's astronomical. But look at the price of a college education. You're going to go four years. It's going to cost you a hundred grand, in some cases more. That's $25,000 a year that you're putting into this education. That's basically just a check in the box. It's like, and there are, are a million people out there who are doing what I'm doing in every conceivable industry, no matter what it is you want to do. There's somebody who is in that industry, who's actively building a business in that same industry and who also teaches what they know much of it for free.
1: It's yeah. a fantastic point. And with the college education, there's the cost the, you know, that you're actually pouring into with The sun cost There's also the opportunity cost of yes. losing those four or five years, whatever it is of not working and, and getting behind yeah. everyone else. So
0: those are, those are prime skill building years, and, and this gets, you know you talk about the the big thing about colleges. They always tell you, well, you do two years because we need the kids to figure out what they want to do and try their hands at a bunch of different stuff. I'm like, yeah, but you charge them twenty five grand a year to do that for the privilege. Mm-hmm. Like, how about this? How about if you like the idea of working at uh, in I don't know in uh, in psychology. Why don't you go and mentor work with somebody in the in the office and 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 handle the books or maybe handle the, the the bookings or whatever for this person? Learn a little bit about the industry, get paid to do it, and then decide whether or not you want to go forward. There's some other industry that you're interested in. Dude, how about you spend a year trying to figure out how to make a little money doing that and building your skill set there? And then, hey you might fail two or three times. You might take a course on this and a course on that and it costs you $500 for this one and $1,000 for that one. And you realize after you're done, you know what? I don't really like either one of those things. That's not really what I want to do with my life. Fantastic. You blew $1,500, not 25 grand on a college, on, on one year at a college, right? Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I don't, want to, I don't want to just, you know, occupy the mic time here, but I just like, it really bothers me that we ask kids these days to make so many critical decisions so early when they haven't had an ounce of life to live on their own. We the, the two most important decisions I think you'll make in your entire life is who you choose to spend your life with, your spouse. And secondly, is what you choose to do with your life in terms of your work and fulfillment. And we ask young people to make both of those decisions, especially if you live in flyover country like I did growing up both of those decisions before they graduate from college, before they've had an ounce of a chance to live a life on their own, to try Mm -hmm. their hand at anything. They lived at the dorms. Maybe they spent a year living with some friends in an apartment building, but that's it. And we're asking them to make decisions that no kid should be asked to make at that stage of life. And you know, give your kids a chance. Let them try some different things and understand that the way you and I grew up the, what was important and what the, the, what everybody said was supposed to, we were supposed to do when we were in our twenties, that that's not the case anymore. We need to be thinking very differently about this.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I think honestly, and this, this is not, you know, pointy fingers at, at, at parents and saying people, you know, saying, you know, parents are, are bad parents. It's just the, the situation. It's the circumstances of what we've lived through. It's in the past, whatever. I'm not, not, I'm not mad at anybody, but and I'm not trying to, to indict anybody for making bad decisions or, or forcing kids to go to college. But I think the matter of fact is a lot of parents do force their kids to go to college for their own egos and into maybe different college situations than maybe they're best suited for, for to feed their own egos. To compare with other parents, my kid goes to XYZ college and uh, they put the sticker on the back of their car. That culture needs to stop. Uh, that, I mean that that's feeding in to this uh this model that we have today, and it's just a reality of of where we are and where we've been, and mm-hmm. we can change that obviously, and I think that starts with really really our generation we're we're similar ages you're you're yeah. forty three I'm almost forty, so it's with with our kids really, where I think we can start to make that shift,
0: yeah, I hope so, and i don't want I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying because you pointed out really importantly that You know, we're not talking about not being educated. You see a lot of immigrants uh, and immigrant families who come over where education is not something that's easily accessible. And their big thing is, hey, I want my kid to go to college. I want him to be an engineer or a doctor or something because these are respectable careers. I'm not in any way suggesting that you shouldn't encourage your kids to get an education. The question is, what is education in 2022 and beyond, and where do you, can you give your kids the best chance of of a great life, of a fulfilled life? And I don't think that the halls of higher education uh, in America today is the way is the primary way that people should be doing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a, f- a few minutes left. We went over the time I originally scheduled, but you said we got an hour, so so I'm going to no, take we're it. We're fine. Man. Um, You're good, whatever. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do want to ask you about. About Trump, so we're talking today. This is August ninth, yesterday, at about the same time, or maybe a little earlier. Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago uh, residence was raided by the FBI. Um, what we know today, at this point in time, is that it was the reason for the raid was because he allegedly had some. Um, national security documents, um, some some uh, high security documents that he should not have had um, in his possession. And it was not a FISA warrant. It was a warrant signed by a federal judge. And the federal judge who signed the warrant was somehow, I'm not entirely sure of how this adds up now, but was somehow involved with the Jeffrey Epstein Defense case, or some people <laughs> tied to Jeffrey Epstein. It's, <laughs> They're it's trying just, to
0: make that connection. They're bringing Jeffrey Epstein into into it now. Huh? It's it's it's,
1: right. it's 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 weird. I mean, the whole the whole thing is just so incredibly bizarre. And I'm I'm just really. I mean, we're not going to talk in depth about this. Obviously, I just wanted to kind of get your, to just get your opinion on what the, what the heck is going on? Having a sitting president, or not sitting president, a former president who is openly talking about running for office again, being raided by the justice department and the FBI, um, two months before a midterm election. I mean, what are your yeah. thoughts on this? Dude, I'm
0: more, I'm actually more interested in how both sides of the political argument are responding to it. Uh, because I, and I'll preface this by saying, we don't know a lot, so I, I can only, I can only comment on what I've seen and it seems yeah. like even the news media is kind of like, yeah, we don't actually know all the details. Apparently they had come to his house months before they'd removed 13 or 15 boxes of documents that he wasn't supposed to have. And now they issued a warrant. They didn't issue a subpoena. They didn't go to him and say, hey, you. we know you have this stuff and you need to give it back to us. They issued a warrant, which is weird that they would do it that way and they would go to raid. It leads you to believe that there was something in the house that they didn't want him to destroy. And they were worried because he, again, allegedly has a history of shredding documents and throwing them in the toilet, or at least this is the, the line. And I don't know if that's true or not, mm-hmm. but here's what I do know. I know that it is illegal for you to take classified documents um, and, oh, out of a classified environment and store them someplace offsite. That's an illegal act. If the president did that, the former president did that, then he's guilty of a crime no different than when Hillary Clinton set up private email servers so that she could have classified documents and then destroy them sent directly to her basement, right? These are the same principally. What's been shocking to me is to watch the right-wingers get outraged that Trump would have his house raided, and yet Hillary Clinton didn't go to prison because she did the same thing. And the question is, the real question one should be asking is, is the law being like equally disposed right. and i think clearly it's not you know they have it out for trump they have, a, they have a they have a democratic justice department and you know going all the way back to eric holder and maybe beyond that we've got a very politicized justice department and the only question is is like are we getting to a point now where we're going to where the justice department the fbi is going to be used to attack political rivals and It doesn't feel as, it doesn't feel as dangerous to me perhaps as, as it does other people. But then again, I watch stuff on the news where you have people coming from Venezuela, coming from Nicaragua and saying, this is coming from Cuba and saying, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we dealt Mm -hmm. with in my country. That's why we left Venezuela was because of this kind of like, you know, political assault and, and political violence. And Dude, I, I tend to listen to those people when they, say, when they say that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I don't know. How, as you broke this down, how do you feel about it? I, I, like I said, I find it more interesting kind of like the intellectual or inconsistency of the two parties that you know, are angry about this. And, and, but at the same time, I think there may be the idea that the law is not being equally executed and that the one side is being treated worse than the other, I think, is apparent.
1: Yeah, I guess my thoughts on it, and like you said, I mean, there's a lot we don't know. This just happened, so people who listen to this a year from now, just just keep that in mind. But the FBI has has a track record of uh, of you know really doing things like this and really getting involved in ways that could be could be viewed in hindsight as a you know prosecutorial misconduct in some way. Um, and and I'll also say I think it's very interesting that the White House at this point one day after Joe Biden's White House still says they had no idea this was happening. It reminds me of Obama after every time something would happen, Barack Obama yeah. would say, "Well, I just heard about it on the news, just like you." <laughs> like, it's fast like, and furious. I heard it on the news, like everybody else. <laughs> like
0: how how incompetent could you possibly be to not know what's going on in your own Justice Department?
1: It's, um, it's ridiculous. And the, the other the other thing that's interesting is. You watch CNN or MSNBC, they're already saying, well, it wasn't really a raid. They kind of just went in and searched around. Why are we calling this a raid when a night, last night they were saying Donald Trump raided? So there's something yeah. happening there with, with the messaging where they're trying to, to change what happened.
0: Do you think, he's gonna, you think they're going to prosecute him or do you think this is all just a ploy to keep him from running in 2024?
1: I, I don't know if they are going to prosecute him. They're going to have to have something so concrete that is just it's just a slam dunk. And hmm. if they haven't already had that in all this time of looking into him, I don't see how all of a sudden they, they have it now. Um, but I, I will say that if if they don't have that, I, I don't see how he doesn't run again and win unless there's other variables that happen between now really? and then that change everything.
0: See, I think, I think most of the concern that people have that he's going to run and win again are, is overblown because he's going to go up against somebody like DeSantis, who is, in terms of ideological alignment, is is as aligned with Trump supporters as, you know, as they are with Trump, but he doesn't have any of the baggage. I don't think the Republican Party will allow him to be the candidate again. I think they'll pull some sort of crap like the DNC did when they kept Bernie Sanders from being the nominee. I think there's going to be some of that. Uh, because they're not going to, they just can't have it again.
1: Maybe. It, I mean, th- it, that would be interesting to see. I, I don't know if DeSantis would go up against Trump in in a primary, but if he did and there was, you know, an honest debates back and forth, it would be interesting to see DeSantis calling out Trump for Trump has all this rhetoric of things he was going to do. And when he was in office, he really did none of it. So yeah, would be something to see. But Jason, I mean, I thanks think for being a bigger lesson is that for all their big talk, most of
0: these politicians get into office and then do nothing. So you know, if, that's, if that's what you're pinning your hopes and dreams on, don't be surprised when you're disappointed and, and hurt down the road.
1: Yeah, I think it was uh, Scott Horton that says something like, um, uh, politicians from both sides, no matter what they say, what you always end up getting is John McCain. That's, that's basically <laughs> true. <laughs> Yeah. No,
0: I, my big thing is I I think I posted on Twitter the other day. I said, politicians lie and yours is no different. So just Mm -hmm. like, Hey, don't, don't pretend like I don't care what stripe you are, what political party you're part of your, your, your guy's lying through his teeth too. They just, they just are. So keep that in mind.
1: (laughs) Jason, before I let you go, tell people where they can find everything about you, your podcast, Nomad Network, all that good stuff.
0: Yeah, I man. Easiest place is probably jasonstapleton.com. Right on the very front of the page, right at the top is a link for you to join the, the network. And uh, once you're in there, we have a group called Bootstrap It. And uh, we just released the level one program, which is taking you from concept to your first dollar, to your first sale. Um, it's a free program. All you got to do is be a member of the network. And I would just invite any of your folks who have want to start a business, you already own a business and you're trying to figure out how to grow the business and you want to surround yourself with a bunch of, I mean, very libertarian people. The whole concept of this is very libertarian in nature. It's just like, hey, how do we create more freedom and autonomy for ourselves? Um, all we've done is try and remove the political component because I, I think that's counterproductive. And, and so if your people are um, are aligned to that if any mean, your listeners are I just invite them to come be part of it because it's, uh, it 's uh we 've got you know twenty five hundred active members now and we 're growing uh you know quite a bit every single month, so I would love to see that at ten thousand members a hundred thousand members because you know, like I said, the bigger it gets the more the more value it provides to people so and again um yeah that 's it jason for all that stuff yeah
1: for sure. Highly recommend you guys join the uh, the network. Myself, Mark, Brian, we're all members. So uh, come on in, check it out. And uh, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate it. All right. How about that interview, guys? Um, I planned on going for about 40, 45 minutes uh, with Jason. And we went way, way over, went, went over an hour. And I really wanted to get that Trump talk in. I kind of wanted to do it at the beginning. But we got so into, you know, talking about really economics and business and the future of finance and Bitcoin, and things just kept kept snowballing. So didn't get to it to the last couple of minutes, but fun to talk about it. You know, I, I don't really know what in the world is going to happen um, with regards to the 2024 election. Who's going to run for president? What the Republican primary is going to look like? What the Democrat primary is going to look like? Will we even have an election? Um, Who knows with all the crazy stuff that is going on in this country. But one thing I will tell you, you're not going to improve your situation. You're not going to improve your life. You're not going to um, secure food and shelter for your family by being consumed by what's going on politically. Sure, you can look at it out of the corner of your eye and comment on it. And you don't know enough to talk about it with people. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't allow the, the propaganda and the uh, manipulation of the corporate press and the narrative makers in politics to distort your worldview and to get you just totally bent out of shape. Instead of doing that, focus on yourself. Focus on growing skills, acquiring skills as I talked about today with Jason, and instead of having all your eggs in one income basket or two income baskets if it's a multi um, income home if you have a you and your spouse working um, diversify a little bit please 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 do something to get another income stream started. You might have to jump full time into that income stream with what's likely coming in the next 12 to 24 months, maybe sooner, maybe later. I don't know. It's like Jason said, with a lot of these uh, economic shifts and uh, recessions and things of that nature, you can't really predict when it's going to happen. You just know it's going to happen. So be ready. I wish you all luck with that. And the reason that I changed this show to this format is to help you along this journey. So if you like what I'm doing here, If you want to support me, please subscribe both to the Lions of Liberty Network feed. Or, you know, you don't have to. You can if you want all three shows. But if you just want this show, you can also just subscribe to my Finding Freedom feed. Just go to any podcasting app, type in Finding Freedom, John Odermatt. It'll pop up. Give me a subscription and also give me a a rating, a uh, five-star rating and leave a nice review. I'll read it on the air. And uh, that's that. That's that. And uh, I don't know. I was going to have some fancy saying, but I had, I had nothing else. So that's all I got. Everybody, enjoy your weekend. And always remember to keep your head up and the fires of Liberty burning.